God, Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, the Almighty God, the Living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days, the Good Shepherd, the Everlasting One, the Most High God, the Unchangeable One, the Righteous One, the Master, the Lord, the Great I Am, the Holy One, the Judge, the Creator of the heavens and earth, our Father, Abba, Dad, Daddy. In Galatians 4, 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have a Daddy in heaven who cares about us. This has been a really personal thing that I've been kind of going through is because I have to undo years of thinking. I've always imagined God as a judge in my life and imagining when I do something wrong, he loves me a little bit less. But God has really been pressing on my heart that he loves me no matter what as a dad would love his child, as I love my sons. <clears throat> so... A father, let's talk kind of about a father and what that means. So like all of us have had fathers. Some of us broken relationships with our fathers. Some of us great relationships with our father. But the sad thing about that is naturally we tend to put that image on God. So if we have a broken relationship with our father, sometimes it naturally leads to having a broken relationship with God. If our, if our relationship with Father is based on merit, on based on acceptance, or based on getting him being proud of us on what we do, we place that image on God. But some of us had great relationships with our fathers, and thank God for that. And we have that knowledge to be able to crawl into our dad's lap, our heavenly dad's lap, and know that he beams over us in absolute love. So my purpose in this message today is so that everybody in this room could know how much our dad loves us. All right. So I think in society today, um, our image of father has been tainted a little bit of a role and responsibility of a dad. Something kind of personal for me is I've noticed whenever I'm alone with my three boys, or whether I go to the store or go out or whatever, everybody's kind of shocked that I'm alone with my three boys. Like, <laughs> how are you handling this? This is a job for Holly and whatnot. And it's just kind of whatever. And I'm like, no, man, these are my kids. I love spending time with them. Like, these are my boys. Like, and so I think, I think that kind of creeps into our society is where, is where we're, is we're so wowed by uh, if, a, if a father plays up to his role. But let's find peace and let's find comfort that our God stays up to his role as a perfect father, as a perfect example, so that we don't portray our misconceptions and our, you know, subtle subconscious thoughts of what a father is onto God, because he is our pure example of what a father is to be like. And that's what God's doing work with my life for my children. And we're going to kind of get into that. 
So as fathers, we have the ability to, I have the ability as a father to tell my kids the truth about who they are. That's my responsibility as a dad. I can tell my kids the truth of who they are. But the scary thing is if I fall short of that responsibility, then they are open to believing any lie from anywhere. And that's a scary thought because there's a lot of lies out there. There's a lot of lies that deceive, that just cut to the heart and that short who we are, that we're not good enough, that we're not, we don't measure up. And I think that breaks God's heart for us. You know, this, this struggle of mine of understanding God's love as a father for me, because, you know, I, I've gone from years of thinking of God as a judge, of God just, you know, he has this standard, that he is this righteous God, that anything that I do, I fall short of that. And understanding now that God is love, it's something that I'm trying to reconcile the two, because I know that both are true, right? God is a judge, right? He, he is righteous, he is pure, and he cannot stand sin. But he's also a loving father. And I'm trying to reconcile these two. And this is something, I believe them both. But to be honest with you guys, I haven't fully accepted it. So I'm, I'm being completely transparent with you guys. It's something that I'm, I'm, God has been working and sanctifying me through to be able to understand it, to be able to, to grasp his magnitude of love, that he can be both righteous and that separates me from him, but that he can be my dad, that completely puts me in his arms. Okay, so let's turn to Luke 15. That's our passage this morning. And I'm sure you guys have heard this passage so many times. Um, it's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son, as some of us might call it. Um, so this is Luke 15. So just kind of, actually, before we get into it, let's, let's, let's go before our dad. Daddy, thank you that we can come before you. Thank you for sacrificing your son so we have access to you. So that you can call us sons and children of you. God, I pray that this message, even though we've heard this passage so many times, that your Holy Spirit might do work today so that we might grasp truths that maybe we have forgotten about that don't mean so much at this moment and that we can just hold on to them and cling to them till it gets us through our lives that these are life-changing truths father so that we can understand them but god help me not be in the way of that i pray that it's your holy spirit that is the one who's working today and i have nothing to do with it and i pray that i sit back and i watch you work Father, I just pray for this service. I pray that your words may be said. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Luke 15. So, as some of you guys know, I'm in Bible college, and so the thing that gets pressed over and over and over again is context. They say context is king. So we're going to look at Luke 15 and understand kind of the context of what's happening here. What's the situation? Understanding the kind of the history and the culture behind it and everything. And where we can find the context of Luke 15 is in the first two verses. So if we read that, we see, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to him, being Jesus. 
And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them? And in verse 3 it says, So he told him this parable. So, imagine there's this room. Jesus is sitting down with the tax collectors and sinners. And in walks the Pharisees, and they're all lined up in the back, and they're just watching this. And they're grumbling among themselves, seeing Jesus sitting here eating with sinners. And what are you doing? Like, like you know, this is the holy, you've got to implement holiness. And you're, you're, you're compromising, you're eating with these people. So this is kind of the tension that's in the room, just to kind of set the foreground. So, tax collector, what does that mean? You know, I'm sure most of us know what that means. So, like, what that is, is the Roman Empire was oppressing Israel at the time, okay? These tax collectors, majority of them were Jewish tax collectors. So that they were doing where they were taking from money from the Jews to feed their oppressors, to support their oppressors. And so this was, they were hated, to say the least. The best way I can kind of fathom this is ISIS. ISIS comes, God forbid, it will never happen. ISIS comes and takes over America. And I, just so you guys have a target to shoot at, I, I take money from you guys to give to ISIS to support them in oppressing us. That's how disgusting, this is how much these guys were hated. Because they were, they, were, they were taking money and stealing and cheating and being conniving to support the oppressors. And here Jesus is eating with them. The sinners, why, what's a sinner, right? Like, well, how is, like, why is the sinner just has a specific category? Aren't we all sinners? Isn't, like, everybody a sinner? The sinners were these rejects, were these, like, outcasts of the city. They were the prostitutes. They were, like, the drug dealers of the city. They were not only that, but sinners were also labeled as, like, the deformed, right? The, the, the ones with leprosy, the ones that were, that were paralytic, the ones that were that they were labeled as the sinners. And here Jesus is eating with this crowd and spending time with them. But I want you to know that in Luke 15, the context of this, the lost sheep, or the lost, yeah, lost sheep, lost coin, and lost son isn't a message that Jesus was giving to the sinners and the tax collectors. Because he says right here, it says, this, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So this whole, all this parable is a response to their grumbling. He's talking to the Pharisees straight on. Okay, so let's go in an overview just kind of quickly because I want to focus on the prodigal son. So the lost sheep, what happens is Jesus, or the good shepherd, he has 100 sheep, one stray. He leaves the 99 to seek the lost. Finds the one comes back, rejoices. A huge celebration comes into effect, right? Second story. He lays another, another parable. Lost coin. A woman has ten coins, loses one. What happens? She finds the one, gets excited, calls her friends, rejoices and celebrates. A sinner has repented. That's kind of the premise. That there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who are saved, right? And then we go into the prodigal son, and that, that kind of is the story of one son who goes away, squanders the money, and comes back. What I find really interesting, and I know my mind kind of works this way, in school I got this award, I remember um, when, I don't know, I was in like fifth grade or something like that, and I thought it was kind of an insult, but the award that I got in front of the whole school was spatial intelligence. 
it seemed kind of like an oxymoron to me at that time. Like, is that, are they saying that I'm kind of like spaced out, like intelligent, whatever? But like, I guess it means that I kind of like see things that aren't like normally can't be seen. So what I find interesting here is Jesus is played on the value system. So what's the first thing he has there? He has 99, 100 sheep, one gets missing, right? So that's 1% is gone. The next story is 10 coins, one is gone, 10%. The, the value system keeps increasing. And then we have the prodigal son, one son goes 50%. And, the, and the, not only that, but the value of the, the, the item increases as well. We have the sheep, which if you have 99 sheep, you can get as much done as with 100. But if you lose 10% of your wealth and then lost coin, that's a huge hit to your financial wealth, right? And then you have the lost son. If you lost one son, that's a huge, that's an understatement to say it's a huge hit, right? So but there's rejoicing for each one. No matter how little to how great, there's rejoicing in heaven for each one. And that we should praise God for. That he cares about something so small. Okay, so let's read, let's start and let's dig into the parable of the prodigal son. By the way, I didn't time any of this stuff out, so I don't even know if it's going to be like 15 minutes or like two hours. I'll do my best to kind of like, I'm sorry. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, well, we're good. Okay, let's, uh, let's dig into uh, Luke 15, uh, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them and not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, to his, went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to, feed, to, to, the, feed, to the field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So here we have kind of the the backdrop of the story. But before we start digging into this, I asked myself the question when I was kind of tearing this apart: was like, why did Jesus decide to make this story so much more descriptive than the rest? Right? Lost sheep is kind of cut to the chase, straight to the point. A hundred, one missing, celebrate. Ten coins, one missing celebrate, right? Why is the prodigal son so elaborate and so detailed with all these characters and everything? And I think it has huge significance, which we're, I'm hoping we can dive into today. So we have the prodigal son. And so what he does is he takes his father's money and he goes and squanders it. You know, we can look at that and say, man, that's a really stupid call on the son, right? Like, he just failed on every level. But I think we do this constantly. And I, like, I won't point the finger at you guys. I do this, if not on a daily basis. C.S. Lewis has this quote. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, 
when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We're willing to give up everything for nothing sometimes. Like when we choose sin over God, it's saying I'm putting my call above yours. I'm, 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 I'm choosing what I want when he's given us so much, so much. When we understand the gospel, he's given us so much and we're willing to sacrifice all of that for a quick, meaningless pleasure. So what is, the, what is the implication of the prodigal son here? He says what? He's, why he's asking for his inheritance. When does somebody get their inheritance usually? When they die. So what is, this, what is the son implying here? Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my money. Like Jesus is painting out this prodigal son to be as disgusting, as ugly, as terrible as can be. That's, that's, that's Jesus' like, mission here. Okay, he dishonors his father's name. So he goes and he spends the money and he squanders it and makes a mess out of everything. And then what else does he do? And I think, it, I think what Jesus does here is perfect because he's talking to the Pharisees. Remember, these people know the law. And so he throws in this animal here, pig. He longed to eat what the pigs ate. Pig was the unclean animal. As we know in Jewish culture today, they cannot eat ham, right? Because it's still, you know, the law, the Mosaic law, where they cannot eat, they cannot touch a pig because it's an unclean animal. So Jesus is painting a picture, embedding into the Pharisees' mind that this is an ugly, ugly situation, as ugly as it can get. So understand that contextually, that's what, that's what Jesus is pushing here. It baffles me that you know, as I mentioned before, that we can have everything but still want something we cannot have, right? Adam and Eve, they had the whole garden and they still wanted the one thing that God said, do not touch. I don't think we like to be told what to do. But that's the thing about love, right? Is that free will, Right? God gives us the ability to love and it's freedom. Because without the freedom to say no, saying yes is meaningless. So God gives us the freedom to say no. We have every ounce of freedom to say no to Him. But that's the sad part, right? Is when God created the heavens and the earth, right? He told the seas where to stop, He told the mountains how high. He told everything, and everything obeyed his command. He told the birds to fly. He told the fish to swim. Everything obeys his command. But when he comes to man and he tells him what to do, we have the audacity to look God in the face and say no. And I think that is, God enveloped that in the ability to love, that we have that freedom. And there's no other way where love can live, where love can thrive, is in that freedom. Okay. So let's just hit on verse 17 real fast. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants had much more than enough bread, but I am perishing with hunger. So let's do a hypothetical here. What if this never happened? What if the son was too ashamed to even go further, to even come to his senses and say, 
you know, things are better at my father's house. Let me go to him. What if he was just too ashamed? Like he, he was at his deepest, darkest place and he was just too ashamed to go any further. And I think that, ha- I don't think, that this happens in my life where shame becomes a driving force. Now the two things that shame does in my life is that it blocks me from having relationships. It blocks me from having relationships with anybody around me. And the second thing that it does is it blocks my relationship with God. And actually, there's a third. The other thing that shame does is it gives me an excuse to do more wrong. I'm like, I'm already bad. Like, how much worse can I be? Like, it, 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 shame is a driving force that is wrong. And I think there's an unspoken character in this story. And I think this character, what he does is he scatters and he accuses to room. And that's his only purpose. And I think we have a name for him, right? You know, so our image of God is somewhat, can be somewhat messed up. And there's an author, his name is uh, William Paul Young. And he talks about he received a letter from one of his friends, or, some, or a, a girl that he knew. And he said, in this letter, th- this girl, she was a daughter of a pastor, right? So she was in the church and whatever. But the problem with this was that she was taught growing up that God, whenever something bad happens to you in your life, it's because God is punishing you for something you did. In fact, she was taught that she was the punishment to her parents, okay? So she writes this letter to uh, William, William Paul Young, and she says two statements that blew me away and that I think, if not most of us, I can relate to this. The first thing she says is when she grew up, she never really knew the difference between Satan and God, except that she always knew where she stood with Satan. The character of Satan had more certainty to her than God. Like she knew that God, that Satan hated her always, but she was unsure of God's level of love for her. And that's a heartbreaking thought. And I think it's more of a heartbreaking thought uh, for God to have us think that. The second thing she said in that letter was, She wasn't afraid to die. She was terrified to see the look of disgust on his face when they met. I relate to that. That's, yeah, I relate to that. But thank God, the prodigal son goes home and doesn't sit in his shame. So if anything that I would ask you guys is, if there is something in your life that's holding you in shame and keeping you away from approaching God as a daddy, realize that in your father's house is so much better than any hole that we can dig for ourselves. Okay, so prodigal son goes home, yay. What happens? Let's read verses 18 through 24. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
and he arose and came to his father's house. So this is his pre-planned speech that he's going to give to his dad. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put the ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. And they began to celebrate. I'm just imagining the situation, right? Like, you're just kind of like walking back home like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I'm going to see my dad. He's going to just chew me out. He's I'm, I, like, this is going to be ugly mess. And you see your dad running. I'm just imagining seeing my dad running and his arm comes back. I'm thinking he's going to come in for a swing, not for a hug. You know, like that's, that's what I deserve. I, I, I don't deserve a hug. But what happens? This is, this is God. This is Adonai. This is El Shaddai. This is Yahweh. This is the great I Am that's coming in for a hug. This is Him, the God of the Old Testament, that's coming in for a hug and embracing the Son because He's coming back. I think we would be surprised, I know I am, that when I come to God in my ugliness, that he tells me I am not ashamed of you, and I am not afraid of you, and that he just wants my heart. And also he tells me that the judgment has already been taken care of. The way that I can see it is like you, you're in a courtroom, right? And God's the judge, but Jesus is the lawyer. So the whole courtroom is fixed on your behalf. You're, it's a win-win. You're, it's, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can bring to the table, but you've already won before you even stepped into the courtroom. But also, as a believer... This is a concept that I'm still struggling with, and I pray to God that he continues to help me accept this truth, is when I choose to run into darkness away from God, that he is with me in that exact moment, that his face is fixed on mine, and that he loves me in that moment when I choose something else over him. That he's with me in my darkest moments. That he's with me in my addictions. That he's with me in my sickness, in my pain. And not only that, but he's with me when I relapse over and over and over again. That he's with me and he's embracing me and he loves me. We have a dad who loves us. But I think more than that, God wants us to be naked so that he can be the one to clothe us. That God wants us in our heartache so that he can be the one to bring us joy. See, there is more celebration for the one that was lost than the ones that were always there. And we'll see that with the older brother. I think God is not out to conform us, but he's out to unbelievably transform us. 
So the story doesn't end there. All right, I guess we kind of got to fly through this, sorry. <laughs> uh, the story doesn't end there. So we have a second prodigal son. A prodigal son that isn't so mentioned. The older brother. And what's interesting is that the father handles it the exact same way. And that tells me that Jesus is not only here to save sinners, even though this kind of fits in the category, but he's here to save hypocrites as well. You see, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, right, with all of this. But we're used to hearing Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, you brought of vipers. You guys are just blind leading the blind, right? Just yelling at them. But here he's speaking so tenderly, so gently, so lovingly to the Pharisees. It's a completely different side that we see in the rest of scripture when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. I think when Jesus was yelling at them, it's like if I was to yell at Mason if he was on the edge of a cliff, I would probably scare him, right? I would probably, it would freak him out, but I'm the one scared because he's so close to the edge that I just, he needs to come back. And I think that's the way that he was, Jesus was seeing the Pharisees. He was yelling at them. He was so harsh because they were missing it. They were missing it. They were taking something of God and they were missing and he was calling them back from the edge. Because everything that Jesus did was in love, right? Amen? Okay, so the older brother. Let's, uh, let's read 25 through 32. Now the older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of his servants and asked him these thing, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But when he answered his father, but when he answered his, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed one of your commandments, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came and devoured your property with prostitutes, and you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. So what's the older brother's demeanor here, right? As soon as he finds out what happens, he is angry. But what does he do, right? He crosses his arms and he refuses to go in. Who's the only one he's hurting here? He's hurting himself. Like he's sitting in the self-deprivating position and he's, he's angry and it's only hurting him. Now let's, let's look at another way that he, he what, what he said. I think what, what the problem with the older brother is is that he had such a dysfunctional, messed up thought of his relationship with his father. And I'll point it out with two things. First, he said, all these years I have served you. What did he just do there? He separated a father-son relationship and said, you're my master, I'm your slave. That's all we are. I can only imagine the hurt that the father's feeling at this moment. Why are you using this terminology? 
Why are you using these words? I'm your father. You served me? I'm your dad. The second thing he says is, I've never disobeyed your command. You're just a lawgiver. That's all you are. You're just a lawgiver. And I've never broken one of your commands. Look at me. And you don't give me my, my friends to celebrate with even a goat? Like, this is, this is the older brother's position. What's interesting to me is that he's, he, dis, he, remo- he disregards the unity of him and his brother. What does he say? He says, this son of yours. I, I have this vivid memory of when I was younger. Um, I got in an argument. I don't forgot. I think it was with my dad or whatnot. And I looked at my mom and I said, yeah, but your husband said blah, 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 blah. That was the end of me at that moment. <laughs> but the, the, the older son does the same thing. He, dis, he disregards the unity that he has with his brother. He refuses to celebrate that his brother is back. And he sits on the porch of merit. In Acts 17, 25, it says, God is not served by human hands even as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Also in Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. I think this is a reason for us to share this to the world. God is not out looking for helpers. He is the help. He doesn't need us. We need him. And that's a message that we can give out to this broken world. See, the younger son was rebellious, but the older son was religious. And if you ask me on any given day, I I, I could be either one. I can either be rebellious or I can just be religious and just super self-righteous. You know, the idea of religiosity and just kind of having that mentality is thinking this, is thinking that I deserve something for me doing something. And that, put God, that puts God in debt. If, that, if that's our mentality, if that's my mentality where I'm thinking everything that I'm doing, if I go to church, if I'm praying, if I'm reading my Bible, then I should have a happy family, a healthy family, right? I should have a good job because I've done these things. So that puts God in debt. But what happens? Let's push this a little further. What happens if I read my Bible, I pray, I don't cuss, I don't look at porn, I don't do this, and I get a phone call from the doctor that something terrible has happened? Is God still good? He is. He's still good. But I think it puts us in, in a position where we think that God is, owes us something, and I think that's a dangerous place. So the younger son came from misery, but the older brother came from merit. He thought he deserved something. David Platt, one of my favorite preachers, um, he says this, of on the day, if on the day we stand before God and he asks us why he should let us in, if our first words start with because I, 
then we've missed the whole gospel. The whole reason we can be with the Father is because Jesus. God doesn't owe us anything. The only thing we have the right to is hell. But thank God we have a God who loves us. So real quickly, I want to go over the father's response to the older son. He leaves the party. He steps out and he entreats him. Now that word entreats is really interesting to me. In the NIV, I think it says pleaded, and then in the New Living Translator, it says begged. Now, I was like, I was I entreats. That's kind of like the first time I really heard that word, so I kind of looked into that. And the other time that it's actually used in the New Testament is in Philemon. And Paul writes this letter to Philemon. And I don't think he was, Paul was writing in reference to Luke 15, but the word is there. And I, if you guys have your Bibles and want, actually, don't worry about turning because it's like literally half a page and it's the hardest book to find. Um, so in Philemon 8, it says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to entreat you. So here I think Jesus uses this word entreat for a purpose. Because the father in this story has every right to command his, father, to command his son to go into the party, right? I know if I, if I was the father in this story, I would look at my older son and I would say, get your butt in the party. Like, put a smile on your face. We're going to enjoy this. Like, do not ruin today. This is a celebration. Like, that would be my mentality, right? But the father is begging. He's saying, why? Like, my son, why are you like this? Come in and celebrate with us. God is begging. It's a hard thought. See, the younger brother and the older brother both need the father's love and grace. They're both on the same footing. The father tells the son, you are always with me, right? In verse 31, you are always with me. The older brother lived at the father's house, but he still found dissatisfaction. I hope that's not any of us here, that we can find complete satisfaction in being with the Father, being with our dad. You know, that ties into the, 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 the C.S. Lewis quote that I mentioned earlier, is that we can realize what we have, is that we have a holiday at the seaside and not making mud pies in the slum. That we, and I think, I think that the, the son just didn't get it. He was with the father at all times, and here he is asking for a party with his friends. He's choosing his friends over the father. Like, like his mentality, his, his idea of God is so off. But what's interesting here is that the story ends. It never says what happens to the older son. It says what happens to the younger son, but it never says what happens, and I think that's purposeful. But I guess I'm going to ask you guys not to look at either sons in the story, not the rebellious son, not the religious son, but let's look at the son who's actually telling the story, the redeeming son. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to Daddy except 
through me. The reality is we have, we, if we are in Christ, if we are believers and true believers at that, we have a daddy, no matter how rebellious or self-righteous or disgusting we are, we are still sons. We are still sons. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Actually, let's turn there. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and then we'll kind of come to a close. This is a powerful, powerful section of Scripture. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are not slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs through God. So I'll say it again. God, Adonai, Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, the Almighty God, the Living God, the Alpha and Omega, the Ancient of Days, the Good Shepherd, the Everlasting One, the Most High God, the Unchangeable One, the Righteous One, the Master, the Lord, the Great I Am, the Holy One, the Judge, the creator of the heavens and earth, our Father, Abba, Dad, Daddy. Verse 